Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. Okay, let's dive straight into it. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians. This is a passage we left off on last time. Where's my clicker? My clicker's where I left it. Okay, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at these three subjects. I've individualized them as separate subjects, but uh, they are part of the same overall subject. We're going to look at the Antichrist and the links of that term with the term man of lawlessness, which is in the Second Thessalonians 2 passage we're going to look at in a moment. The beast, well, I say there's a mark of the beast, and sometimes we assume it's just a beast, but there are two beasts particularly two beasts which come out in Revelation 13, which, which we'll look at, potentially some more depending on how you understand Revelation uh, 17. So we're going to look at the beast, the beast of the land, the beast of the sea, and uh, the mark of the beast, which um, has been written for us in Revelation to be the number 666. Now, the difficulty is when we're dealing with the book of Revelation. As I said in my introduction earlier on, we're going to spend more time in there than we have done previously. It is a book of symbols by intention. In the Second World War, when governments wanted to relay communications to their troops on the front lines, they didn't want that information being incepted intercepted by the opposition. One of the interesting stories from the Second World War was the German Enigma machine, which was a way of encoding uh, material that the the Nazis wanted to relay to their commanders uh, in a way that couldn't be deciphered. Eventually it was deciphered and, you know, there was a, a benefit to that, although Winston Churchill had a very difficult decision to make because the story goes, some of you will know that he found out some stuff about some bombings that he had to allow to go ahead uh, because he didn't want to give away that he cracked the Enigma code. Not not him personally anyway. But um, So we're dealing with a highly symbolic book by intention because it's designed to communicate information to those who needed it but withhold information from those who the writer didn't want really kind of poking their nose in. Jesus did a a similar thing with parables. He would speak to people in parables so that those who had a heart to hear and understand would understand. Those who didn't, they'd just hear a story. It wasn't that Jesus was encrypting things. He was just packaging them in such a way that those who had the right heart would get the message and those who didn't would just hear a nice story, but it wouldn't penetrate any further than that. The trouble is, and the challenge is, yes, Patmos, so the story goes, yes, I have no reason to doubt that, that's, (laughs) 
Well, I, I think there were some rather astute Romans around at that time, and if they had a, a mind to know, they would get what what was being said. In similar way that the Pharisees knew often Jesus was teaching against them. They were smart enough to know that, that Jesus was saying things in parables which were to undermine their authority. So it, maybe my illustration of an Enigma code was, was, a, a, was a little bit strong in the sense of that, that John wanted to make sure that nobody could understand apart from some esoteric group who had the sort of the, the, the way of decoding it. I'm simply using that metaphor of trying to get information from, saying that there are times when you want to communicate things in symbol or in code in such a way that other people look at it and they just say, mm, what's all this stuff on a page about a 666 and a beast and hills and a dragon? Can't be doing with all that. But for those who understood, they would get a deeper message and meaning because they would understand the symbols. And particularly Jewish people, because there's so much reference to the Old Testament that you'd have to know the Old Testament well to get what the writer was trying to lead the, 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 the audience towards. And so this, this stuff, it was, it was packaged in a way, and it's also part of a, a genre of literature called apocalyptic. And apocalyptic, I think I mentioned this before, doesn't mean the end of the world. It means an unveiling or an uncovering of something. So apocalypse is used in modern vernacular to mean the end of the world. But actually, in its sort of etymology, in the root of that word, it's an uncovering, an unveiling, a revealing of something. And what the writer John wants to do is to reveal to his audience, particularly in that generation, we can debate how much it was for a later generation. We'll look at some more about its reach into its future, our present later on. We can debate that, but he wanted his readers to understand through this uncovering what God was saying and doing at that time. When you read the beginning of the book of Revelation, you get these seven churches you get this disclosure of information to these churches about what they need to know and understand in, in this difficult moment. And then it goes on with, you know, bowls and trumpets and seals and 144,000, which is like a military census that was taken. So there's all of this information that goes beyond there. But first and foremost, the writer wants to communicate from the heart of God to churches in the midst of an incredible persecution what God was wanting them to know at that time. Using this genre, this style of writing, that's what genre means, a style of writing, a type of writing, which was designed to put things over in symbol. And if you understood from your experience of the Old Testament what those symbols meant, then you could quite quickly decode it. I mentioned in Matthew 24, I'm not going to go back into that now, you've had enough of that. I can, Nick's eyes aren't rolling, but I can sense they were potentially going to roll there. The sun will be dark and the moon will give no light, you know, and the problem with the stars in the heaven. Well, is the writer speaking about celestial things in our actual physical heavens? Possibly. But also there is a a reference to Genesis 37, because in Joseph's dream about his, his brothers and his fathers, he, he talks about how they're the sun, moon, and stars, and they were bowing down to him. So it's codified in a way that communicated Israel to people through the sun, the moon, and the stars. So you could say, well, there was something celestial going on in the heavenlies in the terms of the actual sun, moon, and stars uh, uh, experiencing something of an anomaly. Or you could say, well, this was a reference back 
to speaking about the nation of Israel through the words of Joseph. But if you didn't know the words of Joseph, well, then you don't know the code. You just hear or see or read a description of the sun and the moon and the stars, and you come to whatever conclusion you come to based on your own level of understanding. So the, the challenge is with, with this, coming back to my slide, if we go too literal with some stuff, we can become absurd. So, for example, in the book of Revelation, talking about a beast, it's absurd to suggest something like Godzilla is literally going to come out of the sea. It's pointing towards something literal, but itself is a symbol. So the symbol's pointing to the literal, but the symbol isn't to be taken literally at face value for what it is. And that is the challenge with the book of Revelation. You have these symbols, and you're trying to decide, okay, how literally do I take this? Is the 144,000 spoken of? Is that something that's a literal 144,000? The Jehovah's Witnesses go, yes. You need to be part of the 144,000. Or is it a symbol? Another interesting thing for a code for you, this will... I've talked about gematria, which we'll get back into, which is the way you've got, in Hebrew, 22 letters in your alphabet. And the way that they counted was in line with their alphabet. So gematria was a way of taking the letters of the Hebrew uh, alphabet, recognizing the numbers that were assigned to those letters, and working out the code according to their value. I mentioned to you before that 666 is Nero Caesar, it's actually near on. There's another way of writing in some manuscripts which is 616 and the reason is because not everybody spelt it with an N and the N's value was 50 when you translated the Greek into the Hebrew. So you've got these ancient manuscripts so most of them saying 666, some of the early manuscripts being discovered saying 616. You put Nero Caesar or Neron Caesar, different ways of spelling it from the, into the Latin, but you reverse that back into the Hebrew, you take off the N, you get the 50 minus off the 666, that's not right, right? It might, that's not right, is it? Is that right? All right, anyway, well, the, the, the N is the, is the differentiator in there, but if you to do the geometria on 144, you get the word angel, interestingly. I'm not gonna go too in deep into the implications of that. Uh, it will become overly complicated. But when you get to the 144,000, and speaking about angels, you've got this word angel actually meaning 144 in its relative value in geometria. Anyway, I digress. The metaphorical risks becoming feeble. If you just take the Bible as a whole as just being signs and symbols and metaphor and nothing actually literal taking place, well, then it has no real bite to it. It has no real substance. You start arguing away the, the, the resurrection as just being a nice, encouraging story to suggest that God can bring something good out of bad. Now, we understand that the resurrection story is not just about God bringing something good out of a bad situation. It's a literal resurrection. So the resurrection isn't a symbol, it's a substance, it's a real thing. So this is the challenge when you're doing biblical interpretation as a whole, 
Oh gosh, I've gone backwards there. How did I do that? Only I could do that. Anyway, let's get back to the text. So, we need to read through 2 Thessalonians now as we begin our discovery of this symbol about a man of lawlessness, which wasn't his name given by his parents, you'll understand. The Antichrist, again, not given by his parents. There's probably a few kids I've met in my time that I might consider giving that name to. I'm joking. I'm, past, I'm a pastor. I can't say that. But I need to introduce to you another layer of time to help this make sense. Okay. So this is the cross. I've argued that that, in actual fact, was probably, give or take a few months, around 27 AD. The reason for that is because uh, the Herod that Jesus was born under died in 4 BC. So the dating's not quite right. And this corresponds nicely with Daniel's 77s. Each one of those 70 corresponds to seven years. And when you work that mathematically through and you get to the 62 sevens having done their, their thing in, in time and history, you arrive at this period of time at the cross when it talks about sacrifice, you know, an offering come to an end and atoning for righteousness and so forth and so forth. I've said all that. Then I said there was a significant moment here in 70 AD. I made the case, how well I made the case is up to you to decide. I made the case that it is possible, it is possible to interpret Jesus' words in Matthew 24, finding their fulfillment in 70 AD and the destruction of the Jewish temple. Now, you may just say, well, I'm not persuaded by that. I think there is a, a, an extra fulfillment to come. That was a kind of a, a warm-up act for the enemy to do his work, and something's coming later. And so if you, if, you, if you believe that, the words that Jesus said in Matthew 24, before he died, you believe that ultimately they're finding their fulfillment. Let's just say that's the future that hasn't yet happened. That somewhere beyond 2023, a lot of that stuff is going to take place. You know, how that's going to come about, we can speculate, we can try and come to an educated guess about, but it takes place in a slither of time that has not yet taken place. But there is another period of time I need to offer to you. Take a deep breath. Okay, this is 132 AD, and the emperor in charge then is not uh, Nero, of course. He died in uh, 66, shortly after Nero instigated the war that led to the destruction of the temple. So, Mr. 666 instigates a war against Israel, takes a few emperors to get the job done, 
eventually under Titus, who was the son of Vespasian, and the brother of Domitian, who would be the emperor at the time of the writing of the book of Revelation. Titus, who was just a general under his father's rule at that time, he comes in to Jerusalem after a siege, and he levels the thing to the ground. Destroys the temple, you think it's done, but it's not done. In and around 129, 130, an emperor called Hadrian, and I think we're going to find Hadrian exist in Daniel chapter 7, and I'll get to that in a minute, but you need to get this bit of backstory before we even get into 2 Thessalonians. Why is it, Hadrian's the guy who built the wall on the border of Scotland and said, this is going to be the new limits of the Roman Empire. We don't want to go up with all their mad Celts. They can stay up north of the border. We'll just stop at this line here. So this is th that Hadrian. There's been a period of good peace after Domitian died in 96. He was the emperor in charge, as I said, at the time of the writing of the book of Revelation. So you have a few more kings then. I've got all of the list of kings here. What well, kings? I'm interpreting it kings. That's what it talks about in Revelation as the emperors. So you get Nerva, Trajan, and then Hadrian. There was a time of peace in the Roman Empire in, in that period. Peace, peace, where there is no peace. Hadrian was quite a pragmatic ruler. Wanted to keep things nice and sweet. He wanted to maintain the peace. And he went and looked at what was going on in Jerusalem. There was not much there. So he decided to begin to reestablish some groundworks and habit habitable areas. Initially, he allowed the Jewish people to consider to build another temple. What temple would that be? Number three. Okay. This is how it's going to tie in, potentially, with 2 Thessalonians. Not guaranteed, but potentially. So Hadrian says, okay, we're going to build another temple. The Jews are quite excited about this. But he doesn't actually like the Jews very much. He's, he's a big fan of the way that the Greeks had informed and shaped the Roman Empire. And we don't know exactly why, but he changes his mind because he decides that actually he's not going to help the Jews, and in fact, he's going to go the other way. He's decided now that the Jews are a little bit of a problem, and in fact, so much so of a problem that he's going to ban circumcision. Doesn't go down well with the Jews, banning circumcision. I'm fine with it, but Hadrian, he too decided that he decided that, that was not good, and uh, he's going to ban that. And he's also going to do something with this groundwork that he was starting to lay the foundation of for this third temple. He decides, no, we're not going to have a temple to Yahweh. We're going to have a temple to Jupiter, the Roman god Jupiter. We're going to make the temple mount a temple to a Roman god. And it was partly named, actually, after him. And so he establishes this temple, the beginning of the groundswork on the Temple Mount. Now you can imagine how inflammatory that is to the Jewish people. Wanting to get rid of circumcision. Building a temple to Jupiter on the Temple Mount, on the site of their previous temple. He also goes quite a way to try and stamp out 
a lot of the stuff that you would say uh, Judaism stood for. And eventually there is a battle and a kickback. It becomes called the Bar Kokhba Revolt. Simon Bar Kokhba, or it was previously Kosoba, he became Kokhba. Sometimes the Jews like to change their names to make a statement. He proclaims himself as the Messiah. A rabbi called Rabbi Akiba validates this and says, yes, this is the Messiah. We need to attack the Romans. Now, the Romans have got a good history of wiping things out, and eventually they did here as well. We have a three-and-a-half-year struggle, a times, a time, and a half a time. That language is going to come up. And they eventually not only pretty much eradicate the last vestiges of uh, of those people living in the area, almost of Judaism completely. Com- almost completely eradicated. And after that, it becomes called Palestine as a way of really going to them because of the attachments to the Philistines who were there in the land at one point. So this is a very significant period of time too. So you get a guy who declares himself Messiah. You get Hadrian who wants to wipe out Judaism. He changes the calendar dates. He changes lots of stuff. Anything he can change, he pretty much uh, changes. He builds a temple, initially anyway, to Jupiter the God, and he starts burning Jewish scrolls on the top of the mountain. Again, he's not winning friends with the Jewish people. So, just have this third temple idea in mind as a possible scenario for what we're about to read. Okay, so 2 Thessalonians 2, we believe this is Paul talking in 1 Thessalonians. He's talked to the congregation about a thing called the day of the Lord, a day of judgment, a day when God comes to deal out justice on his enemies and to right wrongs and to make sure that scores are settled. Some of the people in Thessalonica were concerned about the state of those who had died. You know, what's going on with them? Where are they? Paul says, don't worry about them. When Jesus comes and he, he, this coming Jesus, when that happens, there will be a resurrection and they will meet us in the air. It will come like a thief. If you're uh, not looking for it, it will surprise you like a thief if you are looking forward to it, it won't surprise you like a thief. But then there's more information given here in 2 Thessalonians. Now, this is verse 1. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, do not easily be upset or troubled, either by a prophecy or a message or by a letter supposedly from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Don't let anyone in any way deceive you, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man who is doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or every object of worship so that he sits in God's temple, proclaiming that he himself is God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, um, I used to tell you about these things, and you know that what currently restrain you know what currently restrains him, so that he will be revealed in his time. 
For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining him will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth uh, and the splendor of his coming and will bring him to nothing. Okay, so how does this all fit together with what I've drawn on the board? Some people make the link between Hadrian, the temple that's getting built in honor to him and to Jupiter on the Temple Mount, and the way that he is establishing himself as a global religious figure, because not only does he as the emperor sit at the, above all of the kind of the, the, the various pagan religions that were part of this pantheon of religions that the Romans took on board, but he was now kind of overseeing what goes on religiously in Jerusalem and in this position of, of authority. So there has been a case made by people to say, Hadrian is that guy. Now, there's going to be some supporting evidence to this and some uh, evidence which contradicts this. The, dis the contradictory evidence is that Paul seems to say that the destruction of this man of lawlessness will happen when Jesus appears. Jesus didn't appear here, assuming that Paul's use of the word coming is not the same as it was in Matthew 24 about like the coming into authority at the right-hand side of the Ancient of Days. So we don't know exactly what Paul means by coming, but I can comfortably live with the language that Paul imagines the coming here not to be how Jesus uses it in Matthew 24 as he draws upon the book of Daniel, but that Paul sees this now as a return of Jesus, and at that return, because there will be a resurrection at that time, coming from First uh, Thessalonians, that this person of lawlessness will be destroyed. Right, let's turn back to Daniel now for some of the supporting evidence. In fact, I'm, gonna, I'm already there in this Bible. Here we have some beasts. This is going to lead us into Revelation chapter 13. So the, in Re Daniel chapter 7, there are four beasts. There have been some attempts to try and decide how these correspond to known nations or superpowers, empires. One of them has been thought to be the Babylonians or then maybe the Assyrians and the Medes and the Persians. Some people try and separate them out. Some people say they're together. And some people say it's the Greek Empire or possibly the fourth empire being Rome. Let me go to verse 7 and start reading here. Hopefully you can read along with me and this will, this will start to come together. After that, after he's just seen about these beasts, about a leopard and a bear and a lion, the lion is interesting, is a symbol of the Babylonian Empire. Uh, he looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims, and it trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from the, all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first, f f f 
three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. And as I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head was like white as wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were ablaze. As it goes down to verse 13, you get this ascension that I've mentioned before about the Son of Man ascending to the right-hand side of the Ancient of Days to, to, to reign and to rule. So this horn that kind of displaces three horns and is part of these ten horns that are mentioned. How does this all work out with what's going on here? If we are to take the number of emperors from the establishment under Augustus Caesar, Augustus taking him as the first, going up to the book of Revelation and Domitian, we have 10 kings or 10 emperors leading up to that point. Then between Domitian and Hadrian, Hadrian is the, uh, the third after Domitian. So you get Domitian, who is the emperor during the writing of the book of Revelation. You get two more, and then Hadrian comes up into his rule. So, if you're of a mind to see it, Hadrian appears, displacing, you would say, the three before him, Domitian, Nerva, Trajan. Interestingly, Nerva uh, served in the court of Nero, and he was uh, uh, someone who led the empire to some sort of sense of peace, but he was rooted in Nero's uh, courts. Then Hadrian usurps the three before him and gets to this place of power in order to set up a temple on the Temple Mount, to burn the Jewish scrolls, to stop circumcision. And basically to, to try and eradicate Judaism completely. He doesn't do that, but even to the point of actually changing the name to Palestine, he's done his absolute level best to eradicate Judaism. So with these ten emperors, and then counting three from Domitian at the book of Revelation's writing, up until Hadrian, who was the guy who did all this, you get the you get potentially the conclusion that were ten horns, and then from the three horns onto the onto the added onto the ten, Hadrian then pops up as the kind of the last boastful, proud emperor to really wage war against historic Israel. So. I'm not going to come down hard and fast on any particular point here other than to say mathematically with the number of emperors, with the way Hadrian fits into the number of emperors and what he did, there seems to be some correspondence with Daniel chapter 7 that works. That works. That Hadrian could be that horn that comes up from the three after the 10 in Daniel, plausibly. I'm not the only one to make that claim. 
I've done my homework. There are plenty of others out there who agree. The difficulty is, because we're dealing with something that's very, very symbolic, not everybody agrees. Some people assume that this may be speaking of a future kingdom, not something that we could locate in this period of time. Instead, they want to take this fourth beast, the ten horns, the three horns, and the boastful horn, and then park it from Daniel all the way up into this end of the end time period, which unless we're in that end of the end of the end time right now, is still ahead of us. So you have a decision to make. There is some plausible reasons to connect Hadrian with ten emperors, ten horns, or ten kings, as it will be described in the book of Revelation. That is one scenario. I see the fact that this could well correspond to there as far as Daniel's concerned, but as far as Paul's concerned from 2 Thessalonians, I don't see it fitting. I still see something left to come. Right, let's turn to Revelation 13. The reason this is difficult to take on board, I'm watching your faces and your reactions, is because, I mean, this period of time isn't taught in school, is it? So, you're trying to convey an argument which you feel has some weight that requires an understanding of a period of time in history that most people have no idea about. And interestingly as well, this, there wasn't one, a lot of historians writing around this time, particularly from a Jewish perspective. Tacitus, the Roman historian, he dead, he was dead by this point. Josephus, who gave us a lovely... Uh, um, report about what, I say lovely, that was perhaps a bit crass because it was a bloody horrible time. Um, he, he gave us a report about this period of time. He's not around. And so we have fairly limited documentation to try and find out what was going on around here. We know it happened. You can go to the Encyclopedia Britannica and look up uh, Hadrian's temple. And you can see there in print him talking about him building his temple on the Temple Mount, burning Jewish scrolls, and basically inciting a re revolt by a guy called Simon of Akokaba, who was proclaimed to be Messiah in this period of time there. After which, for all intents and purposes geographically, until Constantine tries to re-Christianize or Christianize um, uh, Jerusalem, in the fourth century, Judaism as a kind of a, of, a, of as a state kind of having its foothold in Jerusalem has gone by this point. So you've got a destruction of the temple there, and then you've really got a, a kind of a, for all intents and purposes, a destruction of the rest of the nation and, it, and its traditions here. It's kind of like the final hammer blow until 1948, when the nation is restored. And I think that is significant. I think 1948 is significant. Jesus is going to return to Jerusalem. And I think the fact that Jerusalem is now uh, part of the nation state of Israel and it has been reestablished is significant. And we need to get onto Zechariah 14 at some point where it's going to talk about the ascension of somebody coming back into Jerusalem. But that's for next week. Right. Revelation 13. I'm going to read this out and unpack it as we go along. 
It says, I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads. Where have we seen ten horns before? We've seen it in Daniel chapter 7. The interesting thing about it coming out of the sea is that it seems to correspond uh, with um, the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 28. And there's, I haven't got time to go into it, but read Ezekiel 28. There is a description in there that seems to be describing Satan himself. Possibly the king of Tyre in the immediate description, but then somebody who you would say fits is fitting the description of Satan himself. So if you read Ezekiel 28, you'll get that. But there's a beast coming out of the sea in Ezekiel 28. But we, just, we just don't have time to go into that. It had ten horns and seven heads. Why is seven significant? Because Rome was built on seven hills. It was a geographical description of uh, Rome itself. On its horns were ten crowns, and on its head were blasphemous names. So you've got this symbol of these ten horns. I believe the writer is referring back to Daniel chapter 7 at this point. And there are, based around the seven, there is a, a, a very clear case to say that the writer is speaking about Rome at this point, even though it's talking about a beast. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear. And its mouth was like a lion. Those are the other beasts that Daniel talks about in Matthew chapter 7. Now, I'm going to show my age a bit here. Has anyone watched the Power Rangers? Okay. Your shadow's like me. Now, there's this thing in the Power Rangers where each Power Ranger has their own animal. I can't remember which animal corresponded to which Power Ranger. But I do know when they came up a particular adversary... All of the animals could combine together to make one giant battle animal that would face down the opposition. They would all kind of come together and connect. So this beast here is seen as a kind of a culmination, an aggregation of the empires preceding it, described in Daniel chapter 7, and kind of has those as part of its substance, of its makeup, that, that the kind of giant uh, Power Ranger uh, um, being. Now it says here that the dragon gave the beast his power, his throne, and his great authority. So the writer now speaks to say that the reason that this empire has any power is because a dragon, which I think people would have well understood to be Satan, was giving the power in order for that empire to exist and to do its blasphemies. The reason it was blaspheming was because this dragon was working behind it. One of its heads, its head appeared to be fatally wounded, but its fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. Okay, what's this wounding thing going on here? There was a story that Nero didn't actually die in 66, that he had a bit like Michael Jackson and Elvis Presley, just disappeared somewhere until the heat was off. 
and was going to come back at some point. The interesting thing going back to our emperors is that when we get to Domitian as it translates from Rev the, the, the emperor at Revelation to the next one, Nerva, who would have been one of the three horns in Daniel chapter 7, the first of the three horns, he was in the court of Nero. And it was almost like a recapitulation of Nero's rulership happening again sometime later. That is a possible interpretation. Okay, I'm saying possible a lot because it's one of those passages where there are six or seven different interpretations and you have to try and pick what you feel is the most likely. Now, these horns, they worship the dragon because it gives authority to this beast. This beast is this nation-state superpower which comes from using the previous um, empires before it. And they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war against it? There's this sense of pomp about Rome. Right, who can defeat Rome? Who can deal with us? We are the kind of empire of all empires. Interestingly, the Hitler tried to model his Third Reich on the Roman Empire. The beast was given a mouth to offer, verse 5 now, blasphemies. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. 42 months, three and a half years. Where's this going to come into? Well, we've got potentially three and a half years of war either side of 70. And I said in Daniel... That the final 70s, uh, sorry, the final seven is split in two, but also we've got a three and a half year war here. Okay, so if there is a final battle post 70 AD that the writer of Revelation is writing to, potentially they're writing into this warfare here. Um, Verse 7, it was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. So they're giving the, having the war over the saints for this period of 42 months making war would fit well with this three-and-a-half-year period revolt, which was called the Bar Kokhba Revolt, in 132. All those, verse 8, now who live on earth will worship and, and everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the, book of, uh, in the Lamb's book of life were to be slaughtered, uh, um, in the book of who was slaughtered. If anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. If anyone is to be taken captive, into captivity they will go. If anyone's to be killed, they will be killed with a sword. Um, this calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. So we have a decision, or you have a decision to make. This beast, drawing quite obviously from Daniel chapter 7, we have the ten horns, we have the ten emperors leading up to Domitian, and he was the emperor in charge at this particular time. Then Domitian, Nerva, and Trajan are three which are usurped by Hadrian, who wages war for a time, times, and half a time against the Jewish people, basically wiping out the nation for all intents and purposes. He even forbid Jews to look at Jerusalem, or he would kill them. He said, if I catch any Jew, even looking at Jerusalem, like in the area, they will be killed. He was 
pretty, pretty darn ruthless. You can take this beast from Daniel chapter 13, this first beast, the one that comes out of the sea. I said it has some, some connections to Ezekiel 28. You have to go and read that as being Rome. If you're not persuaded that this is actually speaking of Rome, it's speaking into the future or into a future empire which is very similar to Rome, enough that you could say that the spirit of Rome exists in that future empire, well, then it's still yet to come. Let's carry on, though. Let's go to the next beast. Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. We're going to get on to Roman religion in a moment, okay? This beast, it says, it exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and compels the earth and those who live on it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. It also performs great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in front of people. It deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs that it is permitted to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was permitted to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could both speak and cause uh, whoever would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And it makes everyone small and rich and poor and free and slave to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the beast's name or the number of its name. And this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has an understanding calculate the number of the beast because it is the number of a person. It is the number 666. Okay, I rattled through that so quickly. Some of it probably didn't make as much sense as I would have hoped. I've just noticed the time. The beast from the earth seems to be the spiritual wing of the beast from the sea. So the beast from the sea seems to be the kind of the political power of the empire. The beast from the earth seems to be the spiritual part of, the emp of this empire, which is described as the beast. The one that is performing signs and miracles in order to point attention towards the first beast. I think you get a picture here similar to what happens when Moses confronts Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is the political power, but he has his priests who are doing their part to offer counterfeit spiritual uh, uh, um, miracles to tell the people of Egypt, look, don't worry about this Moses guy. We can do everything that he does, and we, we've got our own miracles in the bag too. So for Pharaoh, there was the political power, there was the empire, there was the nation, there was the ruler, but you also had the spiritual part, the occult part, which went along with that. It seems that the beast here is the spiritual wing of the empire. Now, in Roman religion, if we're going to take this as being Roman religion, the way Rome dealt with its religious uh, uh, sort of conventions and, uh, and policies was that it, all the nations that it conquered, it would just take their gods into its pantheon. It would accumulate them and gather them into its kind of array of different religions that it took over. 
One is very, very interesting about one religion was a religion called Mithraism. I haven't put the ism on there because there's not enough room. But Mithras was the figure. Mithraism was the religion around this figure. This existed tying back to the Persian Empire and had a resurgence just after this battle here. What's interesting about Mithras, if we read the writings of a Christian writer called Tertullian, the people who adhered to Mithraism had to wear a mark to Mithras on their forehead. The Christian writer Tertullian talks about those who followed Mithras. Mithras was the dominant religious system in this period for the Romans. Most of the legionaries were followers of Mithras because of its, his tie to war. Interesting thing about Mithras. So there's so many corresponding points to Christianity here. A lot of people think that Mithraism birthed Christianity. Mithras was born on December the 25th. He died, was resurrected, and was part of a religion that believed in heaven and hell and a resurrection from the dead. So you have this counterfeit to Christianity in Mithras, which became the dominant religion within this period of time in the Roman Empire. So, if you're the writer John, and you want to warn the people who are reading your letter, your prophetic statement, saying to them, this beast, we all know what this is, nod, nod, wink, wink, seven hills, ten horns, Ten emperors, we know what this is, yeah? Let the re when the writer says, let the reader be aware, they're basically going, yeah, we're on the same page. Then you get this beast from the earth, which seems to be the religious part, and then it goes into the mark. Mithraism taking a mark on the forehead as a, as a, as a public declaration of your adherence to Mithraism. There was such a correspondence with the teachings of Mithraism and Christianity you will find a lot of books in religious libraries that say that Christianity basically just took Mithraism and made it their own. It is that close. So when you get a, a beast coming out of the earth that had two horns like a lamb, it's a counterfeit religion. It's a counterfeit religion. And the Jews, they had the Shema as well. They, had, they kept the pr their prayers to the Lord that was on a little box on their forehead and on their arm. So, again, it's possible to tie this beast from the earth as being the religious system that corresponds to the Roman Empire. And again, this number of the beast saying 666, as if Nero really was an archetype that kind of summed up really what this empire, this beast was really all about. We saw it most vividly in that guy, even though he's dead at this point that he seems to sum up. And in fact, coming after Domitian, he's going to be reinvented through Nerva, who served in Nero's court. Okay. Right, we're going to have to finish this off now. Revelation 17. Here's where it gets very, very tricky. 
He said, Nick's going, it wasn't tricky before. Because there's an extra layer of complexity to this beast system. So, there's a woman and a scarlet beast. Then John, the writer, from verse 7, wants to give an explanation for this beast. goes on to say, Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you. With, the angel doesn't explain very well, in my opinion, but there we go. Who am I to judge? The mystery of the woman and the beast, with seven heads, seven hills in Rome, ten horns that carries her. So we've got a, an image here that we're used to. The beast that you saw was and is not but is about to come up from the abyss and go to destruction. Those who live on the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast that was and is not and is to come. If we're following the train of thought that this has to do with Rome, there is a sense in which the writer here is preparing them to say, this guy Nero that we saw previously, he's about to revisit us through this guy Nerva and eventually pop up with a particularly bad guy called Hadrian who is going to take it to the next level. Verse 9, this calls for a mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Seven mountains to do with Rome. But here's the extra layer of complexity. They are also seven kings. So now we get hills which correspond to Rome, but now is introducing the notion that these hills are also kings. Now, I can't go into all of this because it's, it's already very surreal and bizarre and fantastical, but there is an idea that maybe these correspond to seven empires, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the Medo-Persian, the Greece, Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire, and then empires to come. Five had fallen, that would make sense, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and the Medo-Persian, and the Greek Empire, they had fallen by this point. And one is not yet to come, and when it comes, it must remain only for a little while. The beast that was and is not is itself an eighth king, but it belongs to the seven and is going to destruction. So the seven kings, which are encoded in the seven hills of Rome, which may correspond to empires, there is an eighth one to come after this. Verse 12, the ten horns that you saw are ten kings, we know that, we've read that earlier, who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will conquer them because he is the Lord of lords, the king of kings. Those with him are called chosen and faithful. Right, that is the last of our scriptures for now. How does this now correspond to here? Depending on how you believe the writer of Revelation is using the future tense of language, basically saying these ten kings have not yet received a kingdom, depends what you make of all of this. If you believe that we can take this future language of ten kings having not yet received the kingdom, it rules them out being these ones that lead up to 
this period of time. It means they're still to come at some point. Either they're popping up at different times in history, and eventually there'll be one superpower one. And then there's an eighth hill, which basically, if the hills are empires, is another empire still yet to come. So, if we're to, this is what it comes down to. This is how we have to come to a decision. Depending on how you read the language here, particularly in Revelation 17, I think if we didn't have Revelation 17, we only had 13 and Daniel 7, we could neatly tie all this up here and here. The eighth hill, and the fact it says 10 kings are still yet to receive power, we can potentially start to park some of this in this period of time there because they're still yet to come. This is the problem <laughs> with that, apart from it's profoundly complex. The writer John doesn't always use future and past tense in the way that you and I do. In Revelation 22, when it talks about a new heaven and a new earth, and it describes this after the judgment, after the great white throne, after the beast and the false prophet have been thrown into the lake of fire, and we get a new heaven and a new earth, it talks about leaves which are there for the healing of the nations. Who needs healing? It's a new heaven and a new earth. So that is one of a number of instances I could give you because the debate comes down to whether people actually think the future tense is part of the way of encoding a description of what was happening in the present. That some of the future predictive language in Revelation was a way of disclosing information about the present that they didn't want people to understand unless they were intended to understand it. Because it could be a way of talking about the Roman Empire and if the Roman Empire comes and says, hey, this is about us, no, it's not. These, these, these kings haven't received their own power yet. You say, well, isn't that a lie? Well, it's only a lie if it's not interpreted by those who knew the code and understood what it meant. Confused? Me too. Okay, if that's any consolation. So, Revelation 17, and this is where we're leaving it for this week. Next week, we're going to go more into the book of Revelation. We're going to talk about the millennium. And we're going to talk about uh, the final day of judgment and the new heaven and the new earth. Depending on how you read Revelation 17, an eighth hill and ten kings having not yet received their kingdom, depending on how you read that, takes the debate away from here and moves it forward. Let me read this to you from one of the writers Augustine. He says, Daniel prophesies of the last judgment in such a way as to indicate that Antichrist shall come first and carry on his destruction to the eternal reign of the, saint, of the saints. For when in prophetic vision he had seen four beasts signifying four kingdoms and a fourth conquered by a certain king who is recognized as Antichrist, after this, the eternal kingdom of the Son of Man um, will come in Christ. 
Augustine is writing way, way, way after the book of Revelation. He is a very sound theologian. He's writing in the fourth century. He's looking back at Daniel and saying, Antichrist hasn't yet come. I could have talked about Cyril of Jerusalem, 100 years or so before him. I could have talked about another church writer called Lactantius. He also, those two also, talk about the fact that Antichrist still hadn't come and that what Daniel said, to some degree, still hadn't yet been fulfilled. So when I said that the early church history agreed that what Jesus said happened in Matthew 24, they also recognized there was still some of it outstanding. So, I'm of the persuasion that it is plausible to see that something of that book of Revelation still hasn't taken place yet. I think it's plausible. But I also get the argument from people looking at the language saying, well, actually, it has happened. You just need to understand the way John uses his language a bit better. You have to make up your mind. Is it the future or has it all been tied up in there? But I would encourage you to read Ezekiel 28, to read Daniel 7, to read Revelation 13, to read Revelation 17 and come to your own conclusion. I think both of them can work. I think they can both work. And I think I would be a fool to say I knew for absolute sure and certain confidently which one was the right one. I can see both sides to the argument. But certainly Antichrist, as far as the early church were concerned, writing after the book of Revelation, still hadn't visited earth. So we may still be waiting for him but Jesus is going to come back and defeat him. So he can do his worst. It won't be enough. Okay, we'll finish it there. Thank you for your attention. If you do have any more questions, I'm sure you have. You might need to go away and just ruminate for a while. Uh, please ping them through to me. And hopefully, hopefully just some of that has just taken your understanding on a little bit. Okay, final installment next week. Themes of Revelation, Final Judgment, and the Millennium. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarranty.com.